Well, hello. My name is Bridget Reeves, and I'm a partner here at Lettered Streets Covenant Church. Um, this is the second time that I've had the opportunity to share in this setting, and I'm really grateful um, that I get to do it again. If we haven't met yet, I hope we get to soon. I was talking with my husband, Justin, this last week as I was preparing um, for tonight, and I was asking him for some intro ideas, and I was thinking maybe a story of one of our three plus kids or something like that, and he said something along the lines of, it would be really cool if you shared a story or scene from a movie that everyone has seen, like Star Wars. (laughs) Implying, um, but he was getting at the fact that I couldn't possibly do that because despite his best efforts, I have maybe seen one Star Wars movie. And so my ability to compare and contrast the family drama from Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader with the family drama of Jacob in Genesis 28 would be next to impossible. And (laughs) I apologize now to all of you that love Star Wars and I probably won't ever get invited back if Chris is watching this now. But I can assure you that I know way more about Genesis 28, which is the passage we're gonna talk about today, than I do about Star Wars, thankfully for us. Um, And Genesis 28 verse 10 is where we're going to pick up our passage. Uh, And this is coming on the heels of some big family drama in Jacob's life. So it picks up at a place where his mom and dad, Rebecca and Isaac, have just sent him off to Rebecca's brother Laban in Haran, Haran, to find a wife, or so that's what they're telling each other and probably telling other people as well, but what actually seemed to prompt his journey away from his family and homeland, the promised land, is the fact that his twin brother Esau has started to plot murder against him. And that was only after Jacob deceived and lied and stole a blessing from Esau from their dad, Isaac. And that was after, so the story just keeps getting worse, and that was after Esau gave his birthright, traded it, traded his birthright to Jacob for a meal. So there were some tense family relations here, and maybe it's similar to Star Wars, I don't know exactly, you'll have to tell me later. But there was deception and murder plots and favoritism and grudges and grave disappointments and sibling conflict, and that's just what we have recorded here. Who knows what else went went on that was not actually recorded. So this is all that Jacob leaves behind in Beersheba, along with the familiar, the comfortable, and the steady provision of his family. And this is where we start verse 10. And if you wanted to follow along in your pew Bible, it is on page 28. So we're in Genesis 28, on page 28. I chose the passage because of that. I'm just kidding. Um, It's on page 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 10, if you wanted to follow along. Um, And I'm going to invite you to stay seated. I know we usually stand, but because of how I tend to go through scripture, I tend to expound as I go. You may be left standing for a long time, and so I just don't want to leave anyone in that position. Um, So if you feel like you want to stand, feel free, but otherwise, stay seated, because it's gonna take me a while to get through the 12 verses. Um, Just a heads up. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the stories that we have of Jacob and others. Lord, we lift up to you our hearts in this room as we go through your word. 
Lord, I pray that you would do in our hearts what your will is. Lord, whatever is of you that you want to go forward tonight, that you want to do a work in us, myself included, Lord, let that stick. And anything else, God, that would distract us or would get in the way, Lord, push that to the back, Lord. Let that stuff, let all those distractions fall to the wayside, Lord, and let us be able to focus on you and your gospel and your good word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. So this journey would take probably about, sorry, I keep thinking something's on my face, and there is. Um, it would be, it would take about 500 uh, 500 to 550 miles, this whole journey, so about a month's journey. At this point that we're picking up the story, he's probably a couple days in, but this is a long journey that he just set out for. Verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And I just want to take a note here of the fact that they, the narrator here said certain place, and just like Put a note there. Um, they don't name the place. Later on, we'll find out that this is a major Canaanite city called Luz. Clearly, the narrator knows that because they wrote the rest of the passage. But they just call it a certain place at this point. And so just take note of that. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. Verse 12. He, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. That resting on the earth, literally in Hebrew, means placed toward the earth. Placed towards the earth. And what that indicates to myself is that this is a stairway, this is a ladder that is God-initiated. Started in heaven, went to earth. This isn't something that Jacob initiated, that we initiated, that Jacob schemed. This is by God's grace that this is here, this connection. So it's placed towards the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you. Or, Yes, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. When Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Verse 13. 
at the end there it mentioned the pillar again, and there's, at times there's been some commentators and people that have debated about whether or not this is a more of a pagan structure and is evidence of Jacob being kind of um, still very early in his faith or on the outs with his faith, um, but we see him consecrating it. And so I, I think that we can take this, this pillar, this, this structure, as one very similar to other pillars that were set up memorializing an encounter with God. And this is what Jacob has. He has this encounter with God in this story. Jacob is at a huge transition point in his life, physically leaving one place and moving to another. He's embarking on his own, separate from his parents. And I don't think it's quite appropriate to say that, oh, his faith is becoming his own here, as if he lived in, his moder- in our modern day teenage leaving the nest sort of situation. He is 77 years old, after all, in this passage. And this is very similar to the age that Abraham was when Abraham embarked on a journey as well. But it is important to point out that this is the first evidence of his spiritual walk that we have. And if anything, we actually have something, we have many things to the contrary of him maturing and growing in his faith. In the same vein, Jacob is a fugitive here. He's on the run for his life. He lied and stole from his brother and dad at this point. Suffice it to say that if Jacob had a life status on Facebook or something else, it would probably read, it's very complicated right now. And he is a work in process. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I love Old Testament stories. There's just something about them that get me. And I think I I love them so much partially because of the character development that we get to see. We get to see people's lives in these narratives that go on for years. We don't see people at just one point, but it's these, these points where we see Jacob born and grow in his faith and his journey with the Lord. And those things, That's where we live many times. We live in all of those different points. So I love love Old Testament narrative because of that. With the remainder of our time, I want us to focus on three things for those of you that take notes. There'll be three points. Um, Two promises from God and one invitation for response from us. So let's go back to the start of the journey in verse 10 in the certain place in verse 11, because it is in this no place, this certain place, this place of great uncertainty and fear and vulnerability, this running for his life, that the first promise is communicated to Jacob and to us. God commits himself to Jacob and promises his presence. We read this through his reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant, and then in verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God promises himself to this fugitive Jacob. It's interesting, though, that God does it in a dream, because the other people that God communicates to in dreams in the book of Genesis are people that are kind of on the outs with God. They're only on the outside of the faith. And these people include like Laban, Abimelech, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's servants. Jacob gets a dream. Prophets get visions. 
And so here we have God communicating, committing himself to this fugitive Jacob, this person that's kind of on the outs with God, but he's still saying, I'm with you, and I'll watch over you. I'm gonna bring this thing to fruition. We see him promising this presence as well in the imagery of the staircase. The staircase resting on the earth, placed towards the earth, that originated in heaven. It's evidence of God choosing to establish the connection with us. This ladder, the stairway, whatever translation you have there, um, is a foreshadowing of Jesus establishing relationship and connection with us. His coming to earth, his being Emmanuel, God with us. It's God initiated, not Jacob schemed here. And this connection is so close that literally Jesus references it in John 1:51, and I'm just gonna read that for us real quick. It says, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is direct reference to Jacob's dream, suggesting Jesus as the Son of Man is the new Bethel, the new house of God, the new gate of heaven. He is the point of contact between heaven and earth. Jacob is surprisingly the first one to receive the promise, I am with you. And the more direct translation here is, I am really with you. And I always find it really funny when there's some of those like emphasis there because God knows our hearts and knows that we sometimes need that little bit of extra assurance, right? I'm really with you, Jacob. God commits himself to us as well, regardless of our current situation and place. Commits himself even if we are in that no place, that certain place. There, in high school, I started journaling my prayers and writing out um, in journals my prayers. It kept me a little bit more focused. Uh, and in my journals, at some point, I began writing where I brought my journals, um, where I would bring them and where I encounter God and where I prayed um, with them. And uh, somebody probably suggested I do it at one point. And I, in the years since, I've looked back and been like, whoa, that's so cool to see all these places that I met with God. And some of them, you don't get me wrong, were gorgeous places. Like, you know, the top of the mountain on the North Cascades or Malibu Club, Young Life or Wild Horse Canyon. Like, there's these beautiful places. And then there were some pretty mundane places like the portable we called the youth room that was plopped in the middle of the parking lot at our church. There was the high school girls' locker room. There's like, you know, these places that are pretty mundane in and of themselves. But similar to the certain place that we have here that was not named until there was the God encounter and then Jacob named it Bethel, the house of God, it was God's presence that brought significance to, Be- to Bethel, to this place, to this certain place. Similarly, those places have significance to me because of the God encounters I have. And I just wonder, in this room, the many places that may be mundane in our day-to-day lives that have significance or could have significance if we, if we were willing to, to see the ways in which God is encountering us in those places. It could be our workplace, it could be our cubicle, it could be in our cars while in line waiting for pickups or drop-offs, it could be at the grocery store as we talk, there could be many different places, but mundane places that God makes special or sacred. And I think that it is also a reminder that God doesn't wait until we're in a particular sacred place to have a God encounter, to to meet us there, to remind us of his promises. 
He also doesn't wait until we're at a place of full spiritual maturity, as we see with Jacob, before communicating his gospel hope to us. God does not just promise his presence, commit himself to us, show us his love, and then leave us be, though. He promises lasting protection. And that brings us to the second promise. God will keep us. He will watch over us. He will see this thing to fruition. We see in Philippians 1, 6, it's saying, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. For Jacob, part of that meant his homecoming. Some 20 years later, back to the promised land. And one reason we can trust God's promise and faithfulness to us now is that he fulfilled his covenants. To completion, he fulfilled what he promised to Jacob. And though all seems lost right now for Jacob, he's leaving the promised land as a fugitive, object of a murder plot, and if it were a movie, we would probably wonder about the fulfillment of the covenant at this point too, but God, but God is saying he's got this. It's not the end of the story. And I think this is key. It is often that we only see one chapter of someone's story. And so easily we can define their entire lives by that one chapter, that one season. And not only is that not fair, it also does not leave room for God's work of progress in someone's life. Jacob is a work in process. His faith, his character, his family relations, everything. We are seeing him in a very low point in his journey. And if this is all we saw of Jacob, it could leave us with a different assessment of who he is and who the God he binds himself to is. There are two things Jacob's story tells us here. One, No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Do not let this or that chapter define how you see someone. We rarely get to see someone's whole journey, but we can have faith that God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love can reach them too, even if we don't get to see it. After uh, working at the mission for over a decade, I'm, as you can probably guess, bursting at the seams with stories uh, of people coming back from the pits of suffering and sin after having God encounters and realizing that he is for them. And in some ways, very similar to Jacob here, who's on his own journey. Yet, if you're anything like me, sometimes it's much easier to believe God's promises for the other person than it is to allow those same promises to penetrate my own heart and life. And so today I get to remind myself and all of us that whatever our situations, it is not too mundane, too dark, too complicated, too simple, too boring, too surprising for God. Psalm 139 reminds us that not even the darkness is dark to him. Wherever you find yourself today, running from something, 
bored, experiencing relational brokenness, burdened as a parent, grave disappointment, failure, job loss, with dealing with the impacts of your own sin or the sin done to you, it does not have the final say. Sickness will not win. A mental health diagnosis does not define you. And sin does not determine your future. In the dark of night, Jacob chose to believe God's word. His truth over the complicated, despairing circumstances he was in. God entered Jacob's mess, his darkness, and communicated promise. Just as God and Jesus entered our own brokenness and communicated gospel hope on the cross. This Lenten season, we are preparing ourselves for this sort of encounter. Because God's promises, the hope, his hope, invite and demand a response from us. Jacob responded in the light of day to the promises he heard in the dark. And this is our third and last point for tonight I want to f- that I want us to focus on today. God's promises invite a response from us. His promises are covenantal acts. It's not a contract or limited agreement. It's not something that we can null and void. God's promises demand and invite a decision. And and I say demand and invite, and I just want to flush that out just very briefly here. They invite in that they are gentle. God is not going to force a certain answer on us. So we see that throughout Jesus' life, where he's invitational. And he asked, do you want to be healed even? But there is a decision that needs to, even if it's not a particular decision for us that has to be made, there is a decision here. So his promises demand some sort of decision on our parts. Jacob, we see reorienting his life with this vow. In verses 20 to 21, this models like this reorienting life vow which is a reflection, a bit of Psalm 23, which Elizabeth read. And so I wanna read this, verses 20 to 21, again. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. So, now Psalm 23, comparison. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm gonna stop there, there are two more verses. But that echoing of Psalm 23, that echoing of that trust, and the reorienting of his life vow. God has been bound to Jacob already since Genesis 25, when the Lord said to her, to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, the older will serve the younger. And now Jacob is binding himself to God. All this being said, though, 
you may have noticed that Jacob still seems in his vow maybe a little skeptical of God, if God does this. And I, you know, there's some translations, and I've, I'm gonna be honest, I looked at the, the Hebrew and the some translations, and I, there, it could go both ways, kind of how it's translated, the if or then, and when it says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, then the Lord will be my God. So it, it, some translations read, then God will be with me and will watch over me, and then the Lord will be my God. I think though what we know in totality of Jacob's life and where he's at in his spiritual journey, it is not far-fetched for him to be in a place of a bit of skepticism and wondering about this God who's committing himself to him. Jacob, as a deceiver himself, as somebody who has deceived others just recently in really big ways, he himself is a work in process. And I think, you know, this is that reminder to us that this, this uh, vow is descriptive of where Jacob was at at this point in his journey. It's not prescriptive for how we should approach God. God de- deserves our full trust. He deserves our full trust. And he receives us however we come. And so I think one of the songs that we're gonna see next, sing next is Come As You Are. And there's a sense Jacob came as he was to God. He heard the promises and he responded. That morning, he set up the pillar, he consecrated it, and this is the first evidence we, of, we see of his growing faith in his walk with the Lord. The backdrop Jacob's vow is made in is one of questionable character and family conflict. Neither of these things <laughs> are mentioned in his vow, nor are they resolved at this point in his journey. It would be great if they were tied up neatly with a bow. I would like that. I like things in order and organized. But God commits himself and invites a response from us without a full resolution of family issues or denouncement of character flaws. This is good news for us because we're not complete yet. We don't have it all figured out. Sometimes though, we get it in our heads that things need to be perfect in order to come to the Lord. And if there's any question about that tonight, I think that Jacob's story allows us to lay that presumption aside, at least for a little while, and lean in to this God who reiterates covenant with us and says, I am with you and I am for you, I'm gonna watch over you, I'm gonna keep you, I'm really with you. Some of you may have read um, the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning before. It's written by a Franciscan priest. Uh, He wrote a few other books as well. Um, He also struggled um, a bit in his own journey with addiction. But he uh, writes in this book, there's this intro It's kind of a poetic intro um, page. And he writes who this book is for. He writes about the ragamuffin gospel, who it's written for. And I would say whenever I read it, I always think about like, this is who the gospel is for. This is who this story is for as well. And so that's kind of how I'm going to read that out. And I, I think it gives picture 
to a bit of the Jacob in each one of us. The ragamuffin gospel, or the gospel, was written for the bedraggled, the beat up, the burnt out. It is for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It is for the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It is for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. It is for poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. It is for the bent and bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It is for smart people who know they are stupid and honest disciples who admit they are scalawags. This is where we usually live. Yes, God can work a miracle and heal relationships. He could have healed Esau and Jacob's relationship. Yes, God could supernaturally protect us from danger, like a murder plot. Yes, God can change our circumstances. He is that powerful. And we have many biblical and modern day accounts of him working miracles such as this. But the majority of us, the majority of the time, live here. We live on our own journeys. We live between the rock and the hard place like Jacob. We live in a tangled mess of sin we have done and sin done to us. We live stumbling along, clinging to God's promises and hoping against hope he really is who he says he is. We live knowing that we also have a bit of scalawag in each one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you give us in Jesus. Thank you for Jacob, Lord. God, I lift up to you, all of us, myself included in this room, Lord, and the ways in which you want to encounter us, that you want us to experience your love, your promises afresh tonight, Lord. So God, I pray that our hearts would be open to that. Lord, and that we wouldn't just experience those promises and then just walk away, Lord, but we would respond. And we would respond leaning in, even just a little bit closer to you, Lord. Saying, I wanna know more. I wanna experience that more. God, I thank you for the opportunity that it is for us to open your word together, Lord, in community. And I pray that you would continue to bind us together as we communicate your word to one another. Lord, tonight, if there are things that you are doing in our hearts, God, I pray that you would continue to remind us of those throughout the week, Lord, and help us remind each other. In Jesus' name, amen.